Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. We got, you know, and you're so fearless as a teenager. And I would just say, I'm supposed to be, I would like, remember going to take up, I had like 10 people with me and we went to the backstage of the Palladium when the Culture Club played. And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be on the list. I'm Kate Nails from the face. And I like flashed my card. It was like hand done. And they let us all in. They took us all in, gave us drinks, put us all in a row. I mean, just like all the crazy shit we did to see bands, but you know. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we We drew the map. Should we introduce our guest this week? Yeah, so all right, he said... Adopting a South South London accent. Oh, we're doing a South London Australian at the end. Okay, yeah. all, right. all right, all right, mate. All right, all right. So this is Kate Schellenbeck. Kate, we realise that we're all drummers here. Yeah. You know, so this is this is an open forum, and uh, in fact, our, our show, Curious Creatures, is really comprised totally of drummers. Being that Joe and Dan are both drummers as well, so. Um, what was it that made you started playing drums in the beginning? Um, can you remember? I, I can. I was about 13 or so when I grew up in New York and in, in uh, downtown Manhattan, which is a great place to be. Um, and at 13, I went to see my first ever show at CBGB's. Wow. Because back at, then in New York, you probably remember, you, you know, things were much more open. There weren't people asking for IDs. Right. The drinking age was 18. So... Um, I was taken along with some friends from middle school to see a show at CBGB's. There was a band called Student Teachers, and they had a female drummer and a female bass player. And it was something about seeing those women playing that I was like, oh, I'd like to do that. I want to be either one or the other and that kind of thing. The drummer just happened to also be, uh, she had sung in the same choir that I was in at a school that I had gone to uh, previously. Right. So I felt like they were, they were only a couple of years older than me, and I felt like the sort of connection to them. And I was started I had just started getting into music, sort of like uh, Blondie and The Clash and that that kind of stuff. Right. And later your guys' bands. So it was kind of that that was the spark that put it in my head. And then I borrowed I had a snare drum that I borrowed from a neighbor and a bunch of boxes, and I would just play like this. And then eventually a friend of my mom's lent me a drum kit. It was just like one thing after another. And it was that great time, like kind of post-punk 
where you didn't really have to be a virtuoso to play in a band. You just had to know a couple of beats. Right. And uh, I was able to connect with other people my age, a little bit older and start jamming and doing that kind of thing. And that's kind of how it started. So you le- you learned on the job. I learned on the job. I played a lot. I had like my little Panasonic cassette deck, and I would record, uh, you know, Susie the Banshees or whatever, and, and play along, basically, like <laughs> right. play along. That's what I did. Yeah, I, le- I learned. By- I played. Al- I played along to Susie and the Banshees. <laughs> I, saw, I saw the Banshees at like you know the equivalent of CBGBs in Liverpool was Liverpool Airways Club. Right. Yeah. And I remember the Banshees coming down and we'd had the Sex Pistols and the Clash and we'd had Talking Heads and the Ramones and Blondie and everybody came that the Runaways came in there it was a crazy like club. Um but I and the first gig I was going to play with the, my first band the, the punk band that was named Spitfire Boys. And the first gig was going to be opening for Susie and the Banshees at Eric's. But in those days, you had to get there early and fight your way on stage. <laughs> and we, we lost. <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't go on. But I made a little um, sculpture of Susie because I was at art college. And I thought, <laughs> right. Wow. And, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of amazing if I think about it, if I think of all the connotations of that. Yeah. It's pretty weird that she went yeah. on to write, yeah. <laughs> you know, Voodoo Dolly, and I'm thinking, right. oh, shit. You, never, you didn't stick any pins in it. It wasn't that kind of doll. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't. Re- I don't. Rec- I don't recall like hexing her or anything. Yeah. You know, saying you will. You will. I will join your band and I will marry you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a fantasy similar to that, where um, my, probably my first favorite band was Blondie, and right. um, I uh, was so like obsessed with them. But as you know, growing up in that time, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have YouTube. So you just kind of had to like take what you could get. Right. And, um, you know, I'd buy like music magazines or that kind of thing to try to find out what was happening. But I remember hearing on the radio that they were, they were going to be doing shooting a video for something off of parallel lines. And they were looking for it was like a radio contest where they wanted extras. And you had to call in and you could be an extra. You just have to wear like black and white clothes, whatever. Uh, I didn't, sadly, I didn't make it. uh, But I do remember having this fantasy that maybe I was at this video shoot and Clem Burke, the drummer, you know, broke his arm. Yes. Or something. (laughs) And is anyone is anyone here tonight who can play the drums? And of course, in my fantasy, it was like, yes, me. So cut to 20 years later, or much probably later, more than that, as my band, Lisha Jackson, had some popularity, uh, I got a call from Debbie Harry saying, we're reforming the band, we're reforming Blondie, uh, we're playing this secret show, but Clem can't do it, can you fill in? We know you know the songs, can you fill in for him? So wow. I got to have, you know, it was a little bit, not quite the voodoo dolly situation, but oh. similar thing where I got to sit behind Debbie Harry, play drums for Blondie. I always had a soft spot for Blondie because the first gig I ever did in New York, I played at a Hurrah's and uh, both her and Chris came down to see us play. And I, I never forgot that. I thought, wow, you know, that's, you know, I'd seen them about a month before playing at the Hammersmith Odeon in London, you know, and there we are at this tiny little disco in, you know, in Manhattan. And uh, they turned up to see the show, which was, you know, I thought it was, Nice. I, I, I appreciated that, you know. Well, I think that was part of the thing, too, that got me so interested in, in music and, and realizing growing up in New York and in Manhattan and downtown Manhattan, that there were all these clubs that I was reading about 
Hurrah and Max's and CBGB's that they were still there and they were still shows and I was able to go to these shows. So I was just old enough to, uh, you know, blag my way into clubs. And in fact, you may, Budgie, I don't know if you know this, but I actually blagged my way into getting an interview with you when I was 15. Yes. I had a fanzine. <laughs> so I had a fanzine. Um, that was another thing. It was like, we, of course, we didn't have any money as teenagers running around Manhattan. Mm. So we had to figure out ways to get into shows. So there's certain clubs you could sneak in or you, we'd copy the stamps. There was always hand stamps and I would carry right. like every color pen and we'd just, someone would get the stamp and we'd just all copy it. Or you'd like do the thing where you'd flick it and, and yeah. uh, transfer it on. Anyway, so I'm not exactly sure. We, I'd seen Susie and the Banshees uh, when you guys played the Palladium in New York, oh, which is yeah. like 1980. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you came back the following year and played a bunch of shows. And um, so this was at the Ritz. And I, I don't know if we accosted you on the way to Soundcheck. We just could fig- we figured out what the rhythm of how bands would arrive for Soundcheck. Right. And we, we were like, can you put us on the list? Or we have a fanzine, can we interview you? And, and Budgie, we were nice enough to. Uh, oh, thanks, Kate. I, I, always pro- I always think, I really try to be nice to people. You, you know? were so super nice. And you, you let us come in and we interviewed you. I think it was just you. And then I think you even let me sit behind your drum kit for a second, which was amazing. And what I do remember, Budgie, is that at some point you called me, you said, you're very cheeky. And I didn't know what that meant. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And again, no internet. So I couldn't look it up. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. But I think because I had said, why don't you play? I had seen you play it a bunch of times. Why don't you play this certain part of uh, Arabian Nights? Why Why don't you play this part like this? And you were kind of like, uh, what? And then, and then, uh, as a result, you might have called me Kiki. Okay, okay. But anyway, it was a it was a real thrill, and you were my favorite drummer, and continue to be so. Uh, as a lover of the, okay, 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 okay. I've got. To, I have to stop you there because, okay. of course, I remember. And I'm not. Just, I, so, yes, I do. You were, who would not remember? The, the the cheeky person who came up and went like, well, when I play that beat, I play with, uh, and I switch my left hand underneath yes. the trumpet. You told me I did. So you remember? Yeah, I feel bad about it, but I'm glad you remember. I'm sure. So I went. I went back and I went. Oh, let me try that. Let me. It's like, oh yeah, of course, yeah. But then you got to keep that hand on the hi hat because that's. And I was I was making some you know some BS up like going like yeah well that was like an overdub and you, <laughs> you wouldn't play that in the studio but I was going. But I thought you'd cottoned on to me, you know. It was like what the first kind of um oh, there are people taking notes out there. I was kind of fifteen year old cheeky girls. You know, cheeky girls. Oh, I I I, rem- I remember the conversation so well. So funny. You know you know, you've made Budgie's day here because you know, so often people say things like that to you, like, Do you remember? you know, and it's like forty years ago or something. Yeah. And a lot of the times I, I I have a little bit of an you know anticipate a little bit of fear about that because i wonder was i nice to people you know did i say something nice or or was i dismissive or was i you know hurried or hung over or something you know was i was i an asshole you know and most of the time i find out i was okay so that's good but you know for for budget to remember that so specifically i think you've made his day right The band that I was uh, in for years called Luscious Jackson, a lot right. of the stuff we recorded was loops and samples yeah. and layers and layers and layers. 
um, and we would release an album, but then we'd, I'd have to figure out how to play this live. And right. I was sort of like, I don't know, I was a snob or I was lazy. I didn't want to deal with electronics and I just wanted to be kind of very live, um, honed in. Yeah. And yeah, I had a small kit, just right. a, a three piece. And um, so I had to figure out how to duplicate these beats. It's really, it was like a math problem trying to figure out like what's going to be the thing that's going to be missed if, it, if I don't play it. Yeah. But I, we also had a DJ that would run some loops and we had a keyboardist who hit trigger samples. So with playing along to all that, which was, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's like a, it's a really complicated math problem, but once you get it, you're like, okay, I got the formula. Now I have to just have to make every, all my limbs play those things consistently. Isn't it great when you, when you get it, yeah. do you ever have that moment on stage? I don't know, playing with like, um, we used to use like a, a TR-808 or a Roland Compu rhythm live on stage. Yeah. And so this, this thing's going through a flanger and it's kind of, I can't hear the one. I've no idea where the one is, but I've got to come in. <laughs> yeah. And so I go, yeah. And, and, the, and, and the bass, Severin and, and McGeeock, it was at the time, are already off. You know, they're boom, 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 boom. And I'm going, and there's no going I back. I can't hear the one. I'm on the wrong beat. And they can't, think, and, I can't. and it's some, some, some bugger taped it. You know, it's like the pr prosperity. Yeah. yeah. And then it sounds like after a while, it sounds a bit cool, like you're doing it on purpose. <laughs> Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, well, those are the best things, aren't they? When you make you make stuff live and you realize, well, I'm not playing it right, but it sounds okay, so let's do it again. You know, Robert <laughs> used to do that all the time. You know, he'd make a make a mistake, mm. and then two bars later, he'd play it again because he thought, well, that sounds great. You know, let's let's do it. But um, I think, you know, I was thinking back to like before punk. But apart from people like Karen Carpenter, I don't remember that many. Uh, women drummers you know punk for me introduced a lot of women drummers you know yeah. like i remember watching uh june with the modettes and stuff you know yeah that was like my first introduction i remember you know we played on a bill with them and i remember seeing her play and thinking wow that was that's really good i was lucky to come of age at that time where there was you know the slits raincoats yeah um right. And, uh, you know, it's all, well, that's the same drummer, but uh, yeah, and Modettes, of course, but also just a ton of female voices and musicians in, in bands that were coming to New York. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Slits was huge for, for me and my friends. I mean, we would like sure. dress up like them and like, who's going to be Ari? Who's going to be uh, Tessa? <laughs> you know, it's like everybody kind of took on a yeah. persona. Who wore, the, who, who, wore the, who wore the knickers on the outside of the pants? Yeah, you know. That, yeah. 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 And uh, what I wanted to know was who, who was going to be Budgie, but you know, I was going to be Budgie, Budgie it right. was Paul yeah. Mollive, yeah. wasn't it? Paul Mollive, it was like, yeah, Paul she yeah. was ferocious, wonderful, yeah, yeah. So I was lucky to, to see all these things and see all these bands, and and uh, it made it a lot easier to enter into that world. And then I connected with friends, um, which were Beastie Boys, uh, eventually. Right. And that was a group of friends, you know, we were all just in school at different schools, but same age and would just go see these bands. There was a band in New York called Stimulators, who a punk band, their drummer was a boy who was like 12 or 13. And wow. then they had a, a woman playing guitar and a woman bassist and a, and a gay guy singing. And they were just like, of course, it just, it was like the most inclusive thing in the world. And you're like, I, if they can do it, I can do it. So yeah. I think it was just for me, this really like lucky where I grew up and, and the years I grew up and, you know, there was tons of bands coming over from the UK at the time. Right. 
And like I said, we figured out how to get into all these clubs. We had fanzines, we snuck in. There was, at the Ritz, there was like this uh, balcony that you could scale. It was like, yeah, yeah. you could scale it and then you'd <laughs> knock on the door and someone would let you in and we're like, oh, I just went out for a smoke. And, uh, and then there was a time, I remember uh, at the, at, I, we got, you know, and you're so fearless as a teenager. Yeah. Um, I had gone to, to London a couple of times um, and I decided that, you know, also at the time, I feel like there was a real love affair between New York and, and mm. London as far sure. as music yeah, yeah. and clubs and, everything, and style yeah. and all that. So I decided that um, I was going to say that I wrote for The Face magazine and I made a right. fake business card and I made a fake English accent, which I'm not going to do for you guys. But my, my, my face journalist name was Kate Nails. Yeah. And I would just say, I'm supposed to be, I would like, remember going to take up, I had like 10 people with me and we went to the backstage of the Palladium when the culture club played. And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be on the list. I'm Kate Nails from the face. And I'd like flash my card. It was like hand done. And they let us all in. They took us all in, gave us drinks, put us all in a row. I mean, just like all the crazy shit we did to see bands. Is that part of it? What what is it? Do you is, have you got any kind of little theories that you've been like thinking over the years? What was it? Divine providence, or was it just chutzpah, whatever the word might be, that put you, as you say, in that right place at the right time? Is, is, what do you think? I don't know. I do think I've been have had a pretty lucky life, and I've I don't know. Some as as you get years behind you, and you like. You know, like the thing about the, making a Susie doll or whatever. Do you manifest these things? I don't yeah. know. I don't know. But I do feel like I've had a lucky life. And I feel like I, you know, have used creativity in a way where I'm not boxed in. So I can use my creativity to figure out seven different ways to, to get into a club. Right. Or, you know. But that's one thing, right? That's, that's one thing that, that the sort of the, the punk revolution actually liberated for people, you know? Because, like, I can remember going to see... You know, bands like uh, Buzzcocks and stuff, and thinking, "Oh, I can do that. I can really? do that." You know, it's, it, before then, it was like we were talking about. It, it was like, you know, especially in England, it was disco and uh, really horribly overblown prog rock, and, and you know, right. there was no way I could do that. You know, it was like I didn't, I didn't have the. You can afford seventy-six toms. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Or, or Carl Palmer's, you know, like solid stainless steel drum kit that had to be lifted by twenty men to get into the stadium. You know, that was just like it was too far above me. But you know, I could watch uh, people playing, you know, at the marquee and think. Yeah, I can figure that out. I can figure out what to do. And, I couldn't uh, even figure out how to buy a ticket to see a band playing. Like, let's say uh, Van Halen was playing at Madison Square Garden. I didn't really, right. I didn't know how to get a ticket to that, <laughs> or let alone afford a ticket to that. So, you know, thank God there were these little clubs that would sort of take pity on us and be like, "Yeah, come on in," because um, they liked the, having the kids. You know, the cool kids. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and even like if I saw like Alex Van Halen playing playing drums, like there's no way I would have ever crossed that threshold to figure that shit out. But um, yeah. later in life, I'd like to figure that shit out. But um, <laughs> no, I don't know. I came I came up in a in a lucky time. I mean, is it like the, the, there were just like maybe I can't I don't recall there being f like you know too few people around you know like as if oh there's only 10 of us so one of us you know <laughs> at least five of us are going to do something but it seemed like a magnet magnetic draw or something that you just pulled together 
that you met people that were about to be do something. Yeah, we had a definitely a creative group. Like, yeah, and Beastie Boys, that was a real, you know, who knew? These were just like a nerdy, nerdy kids that were outcasts, like, right. we, like we all were at the time. And uh, right. But we all had a good, a similar sense of humor. And a lot of the stuff that we were doing at the time was just making fun of other bands. Right. And uh, so Beastie Boys started as a, as a punk band, but yeah. or a hardcore punk band. But really, we were just, it was like a comedy a parody band yeah because punk was you know it, i came I, I started seeing bands that sort of punk was sort of dying with like was post-punk era um but the hardcore punk was starting to be popular like bad brains and stuff like that right um but the scene was kind of almost it was like too violent for for girls really it was just a lot of like skinheads moshing and that kind of thing um so we we started beastie boys as sort of a joke to make fun of these bands and we were just making up stupid lyrics and, and playing songs really fast. And there was something kind of ironic about me being a drummer for Beastie Boys as a girl. Um, but, you know, it was all just a kind of big joke, but people loved it. So we just kept going and people kept, kept asking us to play shows and then record and one thing after another. And, and then, you know, things changed with hip hop came into the picture. Did the people, you must have had like, you know, the, the guys who, or people who wanted to be the crew as well, you know, I've got a van, I'll drive you. I mean, those people also. Or take pictures. Yeah, yeah, there was just like the support mechanism as well. It was like, yeah, I definitely remember like her name was Hillary and she documented everything. She took photographs yeah. and now she's got a photography book and career on the back of that. Right. Long time late. Right. But it's almost like everybody adopted a role. Well, nobody's doing that, so I'll do that, you know, maybe. Yeah. But, I mean, what I'm interested in is, is like, you know, at the very start of your, your career, it's like, you know, feeling like uh, misfits and some kind of outcasts. You know, we didn't really have people, you know, like in the town I grew up in, it was like south of london is, is very apathetic you know and so we had to find find our tribe right so is is music the place that you found your tribe or did it work somewhere else beforehand and then you inserted it into uh, music and creativity no music for sure was the place that uh i found my tribe and uh you know there were like i said there was this band called stimulators that had this right. very young uh, lineup um and so when they played all the kids who would go see live music would show up and eventually you'd see the same faces over and over. And then whenever a band would come over from, from England, um, like I remember Raincoats playing at this tiny club and meeting, I think that's where I met uh, the guys from Beastie Boys for, for the first time. And because these were bars, they let us in, but they really didn't want us to be in, in there because we couldn't drink. Right. So we'd hang out outside and um, that's where you met everybody. So you'd just be like, that guy's cute or she seems cool or, you know, that right. kind of thing. And eventually figure out, you know, everybody kind of knows each other, but uh, yeah, that's how we all met. And then, then you'd figure out um, whose house was the house to sleep over at. Right. Whose parent was the one who's going to like narc you or like call in a panic <laughs> trying to find, but you know, this yeah. is pre cell phones. So it was, they couldn't right. track, they couldn't track us. No, no, how did we get on with that? How did we get on with all that stuff? You know, you, you, we had no, no way of contacting yeah. anybody. How did we make any plans? Yeah, how did we make no. plans? I don't know. I don't know. It was even before answering machines, really, when you could call in and leave us. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, somehow we all figured out, like, we were all going to meet in Chinatown and walk over to 
the park and so it was a physical thing wasn't it you, you had to be out yeah. you had to be out on the street somewhere where you were going to meet those people well there's i'm, I'm sure and, and for you guys too there's certain streets that pe the kids would hang out on so for in new york st mark's place was a spot where there was uh right. record stores and and um boutiques yeah and you could hang out and meet people there if you walk by where this certain certain uh part of the park or, or that sort of thing but yeah, keeping safe and then keep it. We'd travel in a gaggle and we'd all show up at the club and then we'd throw all our bags and coats down on the floor and make a circle and all do our dance and dance to uh, Gang of Four or whatever it was that, right. was that you know, we badgered the DJs to play for us. And, uh, yeah. you know, we were, we were the kids, but uh, I guess we were nice enough and cute enough that we could get away with all that. And then, you know, sure. that's how we yeah, started forming bands and, and fanzines and art and photography and all those things that you said, writing. And was was uh, was New York safe at that point? I mean, no, it wasn't. Yeah. It, I mean, no, it wasn't safe. But, you you know, you got a certain amount of street smarts. Right. Girls obviously have a different level of danger uh, always. So we would just form a pack and we'd always travel in packs. Yeah. But I have to say, putting on a British accent worked uh, charms a lot of people or charmed a lot of people at the time so we could all pile in a taxi and we um we were, we were visiting from london we don't have any money can you give us a lift you know that kind of thing and it would work you know 90 percent of the time Ooh, where are you from where are you from london yeah, yeah london we didn't know anything yeah I do. I do recall coming to New York and thinking I've got a like. Uh, I had to get the black mechanic boots, you know, like those greasy leather black boots with a buckle on, and heavy jeans. There was a leather waist over the denim, and I was carrying a knife, like a little knife. It was like a whittling knife, <laughs> you know, for sharpening pencils. But, but, yeah, but yeah. I thought, gotta have a knife. I, you know, I was, I was, but there was a kind of an attitude you had to have to walk down yeah. Broadway or wherever it was to get yeah. to the village or something. Cause I used to walk everywhere. For sure. And, and um, I remember, I think growing up in New York, you, you, you learn that this sort of street smarts and, and this aloofness yeah. where you're just sort of walking in your own world and your own little bubble. And I think even for, as a musician or as a performer, I, I remember seeing, a band early on and they had a drummer who was like making all these faces like like all these like really intense like <laughs> and um, and i was like oh i'll never we were making fun of this guy so hard and i was like i'll never yeah. do that that's so not cool yeah. and uh, and uh, right. but it just kind of worked into the whole new york thing so I'm, i think for the first 20 years of my playing i never cracked a smile never made an expression <laughs> never never got into never closed my eyes it was just very like yeah. new york cool um until i learned that's not necessarily a good thing always to, to be aloof and not have any kind of emotional reaction to things that you're doing. But um, yeah, I think you, New York, you learn this like weird skill of just not being noticed, blending in, but you know, playing it cool, that kind of thing. Like, right. well, when Luscious Jackson, we'd go on tour and it was the suburbs was the thing that was scary to us. So being in this, <laughs> yeah. you know, on the side of the highway, where the only way to get to the mall across the street to get coffee, you'd have to be in a car or, or that sort of thing. Got to drive, yeah. We we were always stuck, and we were always, so we stuck out like sore thumbs in in any like Ohio or, where, or wherever the hell we were, and we were just like, <laughs> how do we get to the to the thrift store? We just want to go, you know, to Salvation Army or, or whatever. Uh, but uh, I, in fact, I remember um, 
So we traveled in these groups to see bands. And I remember Susie and the Banshees played at this club in Mount Vernon, New York, which is just, right. just north of the city. It's not that far out, but it's considered the suburbs because the, the it does it's not serviced by the, the city trains or the subway. Right. Okay. So somehow we got there. I think we figured out how to get there, a whole group of us. And REM opened for you guys, and they were horrible. And we were like, ugh, get the fuck off the stage. Anyway. <laughs> But so we saw you guys play, which is a great show, small club. And, um, but then we didn't know how to get home. And we were all <laughs> oh like stuck, God. city kids stuck in the suburbs, scared yeah. to death because it's like pitch black. Because yeah. that's another thing in the city, there's all those lights everywhere. So when you go to yeah, right. another town, mm-hmm, you're like, mm-hmm. it's really dark everywhere else in the world. <laughs> um, and there's, you know, there's no stores open. In New York, too, you learn how to like, if you sense danger, you go into a store because there's always a store open. Right. But I remember being stuck in the suburbs, like, how the hell do we get home? And I think we had to walk far enough that we could get a cab that would take us to the, to, um, and blag our way into the cab and then get on the subway that at the, the top subway stop. And, and, you know, it was that kind of thing, but you know, all for you guys. Oh, you know, I mean, obviously we didn't have a bus then. Cause I would have invited you all onto the bus and yeah. said, we're probably going in the wrong direction. Uh, Mount Vernon yeah, you're probably going. makes mental note. Mount Vernon, REM supporting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. REM was uh, like such a catterall of sound. Like they were like cats being strangled. <laughs> Not my cup of tea. A cut to 20 years later, Lester Jackson goes on tour supporting REM for months. And it was the, one of the best things we ever yes, did. But, yes. You know, yes. when I was a snotty, a snotty, uh, 15-year-old. <laughs> so I've got the reverse story to yours, uh, Kate, about that thing. We we got told, you know, we were, we were doing quite well, and we had to get – we were in London. We had to get to New York fast, you know. So our, our manager decided, you know, he'd pull out all the stops. He says, okay, so I booked you guys tickets on Concord, right? I can't I can't come myself, so it'll just be the three of you. Off you go. You'll get off at Concord. There'll be a helicopter, and they'll take wow. you into, into – um, to manhattan and when it lands there'll be a car to take you to the tv or where whatever we were doing right and that went swimmingly all the way until we landed from the helicopters on the side of the river somewhere and it it was it was pre-cell phone day so none of us had a cell phone and it was some kind of public holiday and we got there and we left the, the the heliport place and we was just sort of standing in this sort of place that looked like an old dockyard or something and there's nobody around. It's completely yeah. empty. There's no car, nothing, not even a payphone, so we can call anybody. And we're standing there for about know, half an hour thinking, well, what the hell are we going to do? And this dirty old van pulled up, right, with like you know, spray paint on the outside. <laughs> and there's these two guys in the van. And they go, they wind the window down. You know, it wasn't electric. They had to wind it down. It was yeah. this beat up old Econo line, right? And they wind it down. They go, where's she going? You know, and we're like, uh, well, we got to go here. Um, we're supposed to go to this hotel, the Waldorf Astoria. And they go, how much money you got? And we go, mm, how much do you want? You know, and we look at each other. We think, well, there's three of us. There's two of them. We can take them, you know, if we get into <laughs> trouble. It'll be all right, you know. And they go, hop in the back. We'll take it, 25 bucks. So we gave them 25 bucks. And they took us. We put all our stuff in the back of this van, which was from, like full of old, you know, tools. And, and but, you know, it was their work van. And, yeah. uh we pulled up to the Waldorf, and, and the doorman, bless him, he didn't blink an eye. He walked out, you know, with his big hat on and everything, and 
just opened this creaky old door that would hardly open and we sort of fell out you know of the thing with our with our luggage and waved goodbye to you know our new mates and that and i think back about that i think like you know the the youthful folly i mean we could have got kidnapped or anything you know we didn't know these guys but you know it kind of worked out in the end a good lesson in humility for us wow. so that was that was good, you know we flew concord <laughs> once i have a concord story yeah. um susie didn't get out of bed uh so she missed the taxi and therefore missed the flight which was the crew and the band like the regular flight leaving Heathrow to get to New York yeah. in time. Okay. So we'd be there the next day because yeah. we were doing MTV somewhere like at the Palladium. Right. Hell's Kitchen somewhere. Whatever it was. Maybe. And um, so we yeah. stood there. The plane's gone. And we have to like, well, how are we going to get there? And that we, our manager was there and he was thinking, well, there's only one way of getting there. And that's there's a Concorde flight leaving at five o'clock or something. And um so there's then the discussion as who's going to pay for it and there's nobody to contact. So he just has to take a, like a wing and a prayer and the three of us get yeah. on Concord. And all I remember about Concord, the first thing, because we're running by this point, because we're really trying to, we're already late for that as well, was uh, mm. Helena Bonham Carter was asleep on the sofa as you went through, uh, you know, so <laughs> I kind of thought, Hmm. Okay. This is a bit. Of, I think we've probably made it to the upper echelons of travel. Right. Um, I remember you got silver cutlery. Yeah. Uh, wow. And real china things, and then they gave you like a wallet and a folder, which was which was le- leather bound. I, I still have the wallet. So do I still have the. Wallet. So do I. Yeah. Leather bound <laughs> writing papers, if you're going to write letters, yeah. and then the big sign at the front of the cabin going Mac One. And then yes. Mac Two, ladies and gentlemen, we are now driving yeah. twice the speed of sound. And you're going, I'll have another drink. <laughs> Was it loud in there? Was it loud? It must have been. No, I don't remember it being loud. I just remember when we went through the sound barrier, it sort of yeah. had a little jump. You know, the outer skin of the aircraft expands, and therefore right. the gap between your seat and the interior wall becomes larger. And they t- oh, wow. they tell you this. I didn't know that. There you go. And so you can get your hand down the side of the seat, but you better get it out of that gap when we come into land, because as you slow down. <laughs> you know, there's something else do you remember that you got, and this shows you who they thought was going to be on the plane. They got, they gave, and I still have these, little silver um, decanter labels you know to put on your decanter of uh, wine or you know your whiskey and stuff so that's who they thought was going to be on the plane put those on my forehead probably (laughs) how fun we don't get anything now to travel you don't get no i know you you get nothing you used to get you got you got socks you used to get socks with virgin i think you know yeah yes and you get on the virgin flight going to hong kong Mm. and get measured for a suit and when you got off in hong kong from london there would be a guy waiting a tailor waiting with your ready-made suit that you know been measured on the plane and they'd radioed ahead and gave it to him i never did that one though you know i didn't really have much use for suits but there you go wow (laughs) i don't know i I, I don't know how to long travel i don't don't know how to follow (laughs) that one Lol, that was just brilliant. Is it Kate's just so good? I think we should invite her back next week. Can we do that? 
Yeah, I think we can, Budgie. I think we're, we're going to have her back next week uh, to talk about her time in Los Angeles. Brilliant. How fantastic. And it's Curious Question time. Okay, so this is from Damien B. He doesn't doesn't want to let us know his last name, or perhaps he's just being coy. Um, says, hello. Good first name. Good first name, lol. Yes. Hello. Indeed it is, Damien. Yes. Uh, hello. I am a Cure fan and a Banshees fan. Well, he's off to a good start. Yes, I, I, I agree. Yes. <laughs> from the first single of each band, and it's an honor to meet you, if you need a bassist, I knew I knew that something was coming up. A request. You need a bassist. Bassist. Uh, bassist. They have four strings, right, lol? Four, so. four strings. Yeah, yeah it's four. Not well, got the full. Not got the full set on, have they? No. <laughs> well, let me know, please. He says if you need a bassist. Okay, okay. Damon. Okay. Just joking. Uh, right. Just joking. There. Yes. Lots of good bassists. Um, yeah, Budgie, yes. this is your question. Okay. The, the Banshees would have guitar effects at the front of the stage, each side on stands, notably in the John McGeek era. I always found it intriguing. Whose idea was this? Was this, and what effects were they? How much is this question worth, Lol? Oh, that's my starter. That's my starter ten for ten. Point. Ten, point. ten points. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ten, point. ten points. Your starter. Okay. Okay. Um, it's a good question. It's a good question, and it is, of course, the McGeeock era. So, uh, which games? Uh, games. Games. <laughs> which games? Uh, it's been a long the, day. From yeah. from the Juju sessions, and from when John John joined, yeah, uh, the band, and actually, the Kaleidoscope was was right. when John came in and started to play those songs live. And I think John brought the the mic. It's basically a microphone stand, the half a mic stand, um, with a. We were talking about these the other day, lol. The Boss MXR flanger, yes, yes. yes. Um, which had, I think had two buttons. Mm. Yeah, I think so, uh, maybe maybe or three. Yeah, or maybe even four. But there were two that were very important to make the the all important sweep. The sweep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the sweep and the flange and the yeah, and so John would be playing the flanger. Now this is n- he never left it to one setting, i.e., if it was on the floor, it'd be on one setting unless he started to scramble around on the floor, which I've seen right. people do. Yeah, so he just clamped it on a little clamp, yeah. on a half a mic stand, so it is right there at waist height. It makes sense. It really makes perfect sense because you know you don't really want to be you know scrabbling around on the floor in you know it's, it's um, not it's just not very dignified is it's it? not you dignified know? also i'm yeah. sure you probably can't see very well because uh, the lights would be at you know the top of your body height well we're talking the era of smoke and dry ice oh my god then you'll never see them on the ground then yeah then you, w- yeah. you wouldn't even find it you no, wouldn't no, even, you, no. you'd, you'd be fiddling around with somebody else's pedal probably yeah wait wait a minute it's not doing what i thought it was doing meanwhile severin's going crazy because mcgee scrambling around at his feet messing with his controls messing with the base i don't know if um if steve severin then picked up a similar pedal and a similar Mm. tactic um but what did happen um because um first of all i think boss pedals were getting rare um, 
right? Yes, and whether, whether they were all the same sound. So what happened was they took the innards out of the boxes and they reassembled them into a rack mount, wow. which which was then controlled by a foot pedal, mm. some company. And, uh, and of course, it was all downhill after that because well, it usually is really, you yeah. know, you, it yeah. basically meant that we got more into the racks and it was such a sweet, simple affair, a little box on a mic stand at the front of the stage. And it was very mm. physical, very tactile. Right, exactly. And, you know, if it's not broke, don't don't fix it, you know, really. That's the way it goes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I got to play probably John's flanger, probably Severin's flanger, because he had one too, the MXR. But I got to flay, pl flay it. I got flay, to flay, flay it. it, yeah. <laughs> I got to flay, flay it, it on a track called Tenant on oh, yes. Kaleidoscope, yes, yes, which I, remember. I did remember playing. Yeah. Like you, Daniel, I played yeah. the bass on that. Yes, I, I remember you telling me about this. Yeah, yeah. I didn't need four strings. I needed one. Right. right. One what? finger and one string, and that's tenant. Yeah. And, and then uh, afterwards, it was treated with a little boss flanger pedal. There you go. You know, there's sometimes the simplest ideas are, in fact, the best, you know. Of course they are. Um, Thank you for the question. You got my 10 points now. You got your 10 points. It, it reminded me of something that I did, you know, because I was always trying to figure out ways of making uh, you know, life on stage a little simpler, you know, because especially when I went over the keyboards, because I had like a couple of keyboards and I wanted to swap sort of the arrangements between, you know, things going through my pedals and stuff. And I had this little unit that had... Um, like a matrix on it that could, you know, you could change various connections and stuff. And I could either do it manually, but it sat at the back of the stage on, on uh, parts of the risers. And so that meant, you know, like a 15 foot walk back to change my settings, which doesn't sound like very much, but you know, as we all know in the middle of a set, if you've only got like, you know, a turnaround of a few seconds, to get you know onto the next song that that's everything so uh, i found this company called um psycho and i think they were owned by peter gabriel and uh in in london and they had various uh you know new newfangled keyboards and stuff and they they got me this device that had um uh, uh infrared remote control so I could have this little thing on my keyboard and just press the buttons on that and it would automatically change the things on the riser via infrared beam. And that was wonderful. That worked great all about, all around the, the halls of Europe in these big dark halls where, you know, there's no sunlight or anything like that. When we came to do a lot of outside shows in South America, nothing first show nothing nothing would work because the sun the sun would you know get in the way of the thing so i i had to run to the back of the stage and then i thought oh geez, okay i'll get oh, some longer cables and bring that little box at the front put it on the keyboard but it's far too big to put on the keyboard so you know you, what 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 a bugger what a bugger constantly constantly what, the, the sun the sun Buggered up the the, yeah. the infrared. The sun buggered up the infrared, and and no longer well, yeah. would, would it work. And yeah. so you had to do that walk. I did not, that walk. Not only do that walk yeah. with 
He had to do it in the sun. In the sun, many times in a set <laughs> as well. Many times. And uh, yeah. I, I, you, did you get in touch with Psycho? I think I might. I think I might have gone back there and sort of. You did know, you go in and go, "Hey, Peter, 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 this can is... I speak to Peter Gabriel, please? Because uh, yeah. this box." It don't work in South America, man. Actually, I was in there one one day and uh, getting something, and uh, George Michael was about to go on tour, and George Michael's keyboard player, who ran yeah. the whole show, came in with with a hard drive with the whole of the set for the tour mm-hmm. been corrupted, and I don't think he made a backup. The poor man was was oh. crying almost because oh, no. he thought George would be very very well. You know, George would be upset like no no set, you know. But somehow they fixed it, so they they were good guys at Psycho. They fixed a few problems. They I fixed- think I think Psycho had something to do with taking John McGeoch's MXR and sticking it in a rack on the stage with a box down the front that pressed a button. That might have been them. That might have been them. They might have done that kind of thing. But back, but it didn't work in the sun didn't work in the sun that's it that's the only thing so now uh, i think we've you've got your What's 10, part, 10 have points we got, have we got part two is that do you get 10 points for that one no i i only i add to your points you, you get like 15 points now or something okay, so yeah, 15. okay. um okay right the next one he he calls me lawrence so only my mother called me lawrence so he's obviously wants to ask said so you played a rototom kit where did this originate from it looked beautiful on stage. Well, thank you very much, Damien. I can um, vouch for that. I can vouch it looked beautiful because <laughs> I saw it every night when you when you first when we first met and you that the Cure were opening for Susan the Banshees and I just joined the Banshees and I'd never seen a set of Rototoms. Every sound check. Yep, there was something there. to behold. I know. Yeah, I mean, you know. I, I'm sure I, I said it before. I was just like, I was fed up. You know, at the end of the seventies, most kits had what they called concert toms with only one head on. You had uh, a big kit, didn't you? I, yeah, I, I see. I've seen you playing that yeah. big r- concert tom kit. Yeah, and I had a big concert tom kit, and it's like it's okay, but you know, and it's a great drum kit and everything. But I wanted something that sort of mirrored what we were doing, which was a bit more minimal and a bit more, you know, had different aesthetic. And so that's where the rotor toms came in. And I found as well the good thing about the rotor toms is you can tune them very precisely. And uh, that came in useful for quite a few songs, like um, All Cats of Grey, stuff like that. It was very good to have a Rototom kit that had very precise uh, notes coming off of it. So, you know, that was really the, the idea behind that. I think I probably get, do I get, yeah, it's only a very short question, this one. So I think I get but 10, it, 10 it, points. I, it's funny because um, having seen your Rototom yes. kit, yes. I only ever use them perhaps as a, in a studio overdub situation. Or it's, it's strange because what I was trying to do was tune my drums. And I used uh, on, again, on um, Kissing the Dreamhouse, right. and John McGee, John McGeoch's last album with us. Yeah. Um, green fingers uh, it opens right. with basically riding on that one of the rack toms right dang, dang, and it's a specific note because it's got to be the note of the song right and why didn't we i go for rotor toms which are more yeah. well rotor toms also had a very a, a very you know uh specific tone yeah 
as well. You know, they, they, they weren't, because they were all quite small in diameter mostly, they had quite a specific kind of tone. Um, and they had a very lightweight rim, like an aluminium. Hook. Yes, yes. That, that's Which aluminum. Very, very that's aluminium for, for our um, American. Aluminium. Aluminium. Aluminium and aluminum. Aluminum, yeah. Yes, it's like tomato and tomato, isn't it, Lowell? Yes, and potato and potato. Exactly. Sidewalk and pavement. Yes. Uh, was well, that that's, that's, by heaven 17 pay penthouse and pavement ah yeah there you yes go. yes now yeah. what, what they're talking about you see what they're talking about they're talking about that the room at the top and what is it the street or the, the sidewalk it, yeah who knows we we should get them on we should yeah. probably get them on curious creatures and yeah. talk about what 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 were they really um what do they really mean what did they mean by that but we digress uh the yeah. the the, <laughs> the the aluminum hoop uh, had a tone to it. Uh, it's like a pre-tuned yeah. thing as well. So you're right about the the size would dictate a lot of the note. Yes, it's a it's an interesting thing. Of course, now we would use probably samples, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I did um, the reflections tour with the Cure in 2011, a lot of the stuff that I would have done before, you know, I put on a couple of pads, and they were just sampled off of the. Yeah. The multi track. It's funny because people come up to me after the show and say, That song, that sound there, it sounded exactly like the album. I'd have to say, Well, yeah, because it is the sound that was on the album. You know, I just took it off of it and put it on there. Um, what I what I, what I liked about the, the Rototom was it gave the idea uh, a different approach, a different approach to the drums. Right. And, and it, it set me off on a, a track of uh, playing the rim of the drum. Right, um, right. Because yes. I, I had these those Gretsch drums. They have very resonant hoops. Um, they're very lightweight hoops, and the shells are thin, quite th not too thin, but and I had the heads tight, so they're quite deep drums, but with quite a tight, tightly tuned head. Mm. And so the the resonance kind of came. The low note came out the drum, but the actual attack and note came from the rim. Right, um, and. <sighs> we spent hours tuning those bloody things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that's it for now. We'll answer part three of Damien's really long question next time. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer Dan Didier. Executive producer Mark Cates. Associate producer Sophie Spare. Social media, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. I love saying www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. <laughs> and you can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, <laughs> at Curious Creatures Official. Twitter, at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram and at doubleelvisfm on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2021.